0: Behave, and I, I'm kind of wanting to continue uh, with that that idea of of the church uh, looking at other churches and seeing how the church ought to be. And so we are going and looking in Revelation. We started in, in Revelation chapter one, looking at at the Lord Jesus Christ and the the introduction of the book because that is the introduction to chapter two and chapter three, and that's where we're we're going to center on. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the letters to the seven churches of Asia, and uh, we can see a lot of lessons for churches today, our church and in every other church. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1 again, and look at verse, verse 17. Verse 17 is, is again the introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is the person speaking, and John is referring to Christ here, verse 17 of chapter 1, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen. Talking about what he has just seen about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the things which are. Referring to what I'm about to tell you about the present condition of the churches. The seven churches that I'm about to uh, cause you to write letters to. And then send them to the churches. Those are the things which are. And the things which shall be hereafter. After the seven letters are over. We believe the rest of Revelation is, is prophetic in the future. And chapter 4 begins w- with the prophecy of of what has not come to pass yet. So he's talking about the end times, the end times after after the rapture of the saints, after the church age is over, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And we talked about last week how the, how the, the angels is not a a, a spiritual angel, because the word angel just means messenger. There are many times in the New Testament when that Greek word is literally applied to men, uh, and the messenger of the churches is the preachers, the elders of of the churches. And so that word angel is simply referring to the messenger, the preacher of the church. Okay, now go to Revelation chapter 2, please. Chapter 2, and we're going to pause on our Bible reading for just a little bit, And uh, I want to give us a little bit of review about what we talked about last week. But before I get into that, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the message. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, these letters to the seven churches. And Father, I pray that you would bless this message. Give me the words to say. I pray that it would be uh, uh, enlightening and educational, but also uh, convicting, where where we need to change and become more like Christ. Father, I pray that you bless this message in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before we begin, let's review the four main reasons. The four main reasons that God wrote these seven letters to the churches in the first place. And if you remember these four reasons, it will help you tremendously as we go through this series. The first reason that God wrote these seven letters to these churches were because there were actual historical churches in these cities in the city of Ephesus there was a church in AD 95 when Paul when excuse me John wrote these letters there was a physical church in Ephesus there was a physical church in Smyrna and so on and so forth in every one of these cities these letters were given to instruct these exact churches that's obviously the main the first main reason why these letters were given they were sent to these churches. They were letters from from the Lord Jesus Christ, challenging these historical churches. Okay. Then, secondly, these messages were given in the Bible to us today to instruct all churches. These letters are instructions for all churches. These instructions given to these seven real churches uh, in in the the in Turkey Minor, uh, Turkey or Asia Minor, excuse me. They apply to every church in every century. In other words, uh, you could find your church in one of these churches. You can find a description of your church in one of these churches, or maybe half a description in that one and half a description in another one, perhaps. But every church in every century throughout every age fit in these descriptions. Okay. So uh, those who lived as far as Christians today or Christians who did, who did not live in these seven literal cities and did not go to the seven literal churches that these were written to this would be the primary reason we have these letters in the Bible today these are for the church our church's admonition okay we, we don't we don't have to be Uh, thinking about these only as a letter to Ephesus. Well, it doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It's a letter to us today. It's a letter to the churches. It's a letter to the churches. It's a letter to our church. We are to learn from it and to apply it to our church. Thirdly, the third reason these letters are given to us in the Bible. These letters are given to instruct individual believers, individual believers there is a wealth of warning, a wealth of edification, a wealth of spiritual challenge for every individual believer in Christ in these seven letters. Don't forget that point. So those two, those two points, the fact that it's written for every church for in every century in every age, and the fact that it's written to instruct individual believers, those two reasons are going to be the main theme or the main reason we're going through this series. Okay? Because they apply to our church and they apply to me individually. But today, and perhaps next week, this may be a a two-week sermon. Today we're going to look briefly, I I hope it's briefly because I don't want to stretch it out more than two weeks. (laughs) We're going to look at the fourth reason why we have these seven letters. These seven letters or messages to the churches offer a very... General and don't forget those words. Very general, not exact, not exact. A general prophetic overview of church history. Okay, a general prophetic overview of church history. This is not the main point of why these were given to us. Okay, so it should not be the main point of any series or study done on these on these, these two chapters. But you cannot do a series on these two chapters without. Doing justice to it and bringing these points out. So before we get into the main reason why these letters were given, we're going to look at this secondary reason. They are a prophetic overview of church history. Okay, it is, in other words, it is possible to to see a general outline of church history within these two chapters, these seven letters. This cannot be an accident. Okay, especially when you consider the spirit ordained order that these letters were given in you know Ephesus first Laodicea last why why didn't God start with Laodicea why didn't God God start with Philadelphia it, there was a divine order to this it is not by accident and we're going to look at today the, the prophetic view of church history as seen from these letters to the seven churches of Asia and I made a little drawing here you could zoom in on that video uh, cameraman this is the normal way uh, most preachers would teach this that uh, when, when the church got started Ephesus is the early church Smyrna is the next time period Pergamos is the next time period and so on and so forth until you get down to here Philadelphia is the second to last time period and Laodicea is the last time period well that I believe is not correct okay because the Bible talks about Laodicea as being poor, miserable, naked, and blind. If all the churches in the in the end time are all poor, naked, miserable, and blind, who gets raptured? Nobody's saved, in other words. Nobody is saved. And so every church in the end time cannot be a Laodicean church because Laodicean church is an unsaved church. It's an unsaved church. It's, a, it's an apostate church. So this will be the normal way... Most preachers would would talk about these letters, but this is not the way uh, I believe the letters should go. Okay, just to leave that up for for you to look at. This would be a more accurate way that would go. First of all, we see in A.D. 30, or thereabouts, about A.D. 30, the church begins, and the church blossomed. So this red is blood-bought Christians. Or pink, if you will. I didn't have bright red. The pink represents blood-bought Christians. There were no Christ, were, There was just Judaism before uh, Christ came, and after Jesus uh, founded the church at Pentecost, the church grew exponentially very quickly. And so there was there was a time period called, uh, that Ephesus fits in. The early church is is the church at Ephesus, and then there is Smyrna. But notice, by the way, they overlap. Smyrna is in light green, it, it overlaps the time period where Ephesus is in. You can't be dogmatic about the dates, in other words. They, these fluctuate, they're, they're, they're just a general overview of church history. You can't get into these and say, well this, they, ha- they didn't faint, and so this means exactly this. It's, it's general, you cannot, just like a parable, you cannot take every little detail and force it to fit Church history, okay? It's a general overview. And these 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 uh, letters, the, the time period overlaps each other, okay? So then Ephesus is first, Myrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis. Sardis would be the Reformation church. Thyatira would be the Dark Age church after the Roman Catholic church got fully into swing. We're going to see that probably next week, maybe this week. Uh, and then Philadelphia Philadelphia there are only six blood-bought redeemed churches represented by these seven churches. there is also the Laodicean church down here it started with the Judaizers back in Paul's day basically ever since the beginning of the church history of church history there has been a Laodicean church and it uh, grew slowly it, the apostates came out of, of the, the true church, they weren't blood bought. They were false, false, false converts. And the Laodicean church, the apostate church is growing exponentially today. Okay, so the Laodicean church has existed the entire time that these other church uh, periods were going through. Okay, so the Laodicean church—you'll you'll understand that better when we get to the letter to Laodicea. I'm going to leave that up for you to look for you to continue looking at. And before we jump into this more. I should address those who would disagree with this whole sermon okay There are some people that say, oh the, these letters don't at all uh, point to church history. The, your, your reason for the sermon is null and void. Well, go to Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 please. Revelation 3:10. This is the letter to Philadelphia, the, the last blood-bought and redeemed church before the rapture. <clears throat> in Revelation 3:10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, if this does not uh, picture church history, and this letter is, should, should be read today as only a letter to the historical church of Philadelphia, then I have some serious questions to you. What, at what time period in the Philadelphian church history did Philadelphia escape persecution that came upon all the world? Never. This, this would be a false, a false prophecy. But it is about the end time church. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. This is clearly referring to the great tribulation which the historical church at Philadelphia did not live to see. There is no historical church there that could be traced back all the way to the church that was founded uh, and was pastored by John the Apostle. So why would God have said it to that church there in the physical Philadelphia if it only applied to physical Philadelphia and it never happened? Well, it didn't apply just to physical Philadelphia. And if you disagree, if you think that it should only apply to physical Philadelphia, and this doesn't apply to church history, then you will need to explain this verse. You'll have to come up with a very good explanation for this verse. Okay, Uh, You'll need to explain this verse satisfactorily in reference to a Philadelphian church, the Philadelphian church, in contrast to, say, a Sardis church, which Sardis is also kept from the Great Tribulation. Why did God only say it to the Philadelphia church? Why didn't God say it to the Sardis church too? Okay, He kept all of these churches from the great tribulation. This is the only one that goes into the great tribulation, the apostates. So why didn't he say it to any others if it was just for physical Philadelphia? And again, you cannot fit every detail of these letters. This is very important. Do not try to fit every detail of these letters into the church history, okay? It just doesn't fit. But it is a general, general overview. So let's go to Ephesus and see what I'm talking about. Ephesus, please. This is the first period of church history. And by the way, this is not a normal message. I'm, I'm sorry if this might be a boring message. If you don't like history, this might be a little dry. I'm sorry. This is not my normal message. We're going to have a lot of history in here, church history. Okay, the first period is Ephesus. This is the apostolic church from AD thirty to you know wherever the apostles died off. Maybe AD one hundred, maybe AD one twenty. Again, the dates aren't very important. It's just the early church. It's the early church. So let's read now Revelation chapter two, the actual letter to Ephesus. And in this letter, we're going to see the apostolic church leaving their first love. Revelation two one, unto the angel, or the pastor, of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Who is their first love? The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. What were the first works? He's referring to the teaching of the apostles. Those are the first works or else i will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent but this thou hast that thou hate that that thou hatest the deeds of the nicolaitans which i also hate he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches to him that overcometh will i give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of god so this describes the apostolic church leaving their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. The early churches as a whole gradually began to abandon their wholehearted zeal for Christ and his word. Uh, they gradually ceased living by faith and they settled down comfortably in the world. Gradually. Rather than walking as pilgrims in a strange land as the apostles had taught them. Harry Ironside, we're going to be quoting a lot from Harry Ironside today, said, Ephesus means desirable. The word ephesus means desirable in greek such a term would as as a greek applied to the maiden of his choice i have chosen my desirable one ephesus gives us a picture of the church as it was in the beginning god's desirable one when the lord held the stars his servants in his hand and controlled their ministry he sent them here and there just as he would to proclaim the glad gospel of his grace and to minister to his saints. The early church was walking in separation from the world. In the days of Ephesus, believers could not bear those who were evil. More than that, they were loyal to the truth. That's what Harry Ironside said. So this is a picture of the early church. And it fits what, what, the, what the Bible says here, fits what did happen, generally speaking, in the early church. Second one, Smyrna. We're only going to get about halfway through here today. Smyrna, about AD sixty. Again, it overlaps. This one, Ephesus went, you know, maybe into one twenty, maybe into one fifty. I don't know where Ephesus went to, but Smyrna would have started about AD sixty in Nero's time. Smyrna. This letter describes persecution and poverty, and it describes synagogues of Satan. Let's read it. Revelation two verse 8, or, yeah Revelation two eight. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation, that's persecution, and poverty. But thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The letter to Smyrna, about A.D. 60, when Nero came to the throne, to about, again, these are just general dates, They don't really mean anything, but it gives you an idea of how long these lasted approximately. A.D. 60 to about A.D. 300. The letter describes persecution and poverty in the synagogue of Satan. Historically, for more than 200 years, the churches were persecuted by the Roman emperors. Christ, in his letter, mentions 10 days of persecution. And so historically, they suffered 3 days of persecution. No. Not three days of persecution. They suffered under three emperors. No, they didn't suffer under three emperors. He mentions ten days of persecution, and there were ten major periods of persecution under ten principal pagan emperors. Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. Ten days, ten emperors. There was also much poverty, During this period, because during this time the believers often had to live hand to mouth. Hand to mouth because many jobs were closed to them because they were believers and they were under persecution. And they had to hide as well during the persecution. Judaism was also rampant throughout the Roman Empire at this time, and the Jews continued to persecute the Christians as they did in Paul's day. It is written in church history that the Jews provided the wood to burn polycarp in Smyrna. And Smyrna, Ironside tells us, Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh had to be crushed for it to emit its fragrance. This description sets forth the period when the church was crushed beneath the iron heel of pagan Rome. Yet it never gave out such sweet fragrance to God as in those two centuries of almost constant martyrdom. Ironside. So that's our two letters fit the two first periods of church history. The third period, about again, it overlaps about A.D. 250 to about A.D. 700. Pergamus, Pergamus. Let's read that letter. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus. Before I read it, Pergamus. This letter describes Nicolaitanism. Is developed into doctrine and Balaamism. Was rampant and spread throughout the church. The church meaning Christianity, okay. The church meaning Christianity. And in this time, it was it was hard to to, to see what where, where the true churches were and the false churches were. Balaamism was in the false churches, okay. Nicolaitanism was in the false churches. That's why we, the apostate church went went right along all the way through church history. Pergamists, though. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Whoa, you're dwelling where Satan's seat is? That's a bad place to be. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So Pergamus, Nicolaitanism developed into doctrine; Balaamism rampant in the in the false churches. Nicolaitan means to conquer the people. Conquer the people. It refers to the rise of the unbiblical. Hierarchical doctrine of church government: priests and bishops, and this this uh, bishop over here is over this bishop at this local church, and that's not scriptural. <clears throat> hierarchical doctrine of church government: that's nicolaitanism By the days of Constantine in the fourth century, the bishop of Rome was exalted together with his cohorts, and Nicolaitanism was well on its way to producing the papacy. In the early 7th century, Gregory the Great solidified the papacy. Remember, 7th century would be six hundreds, 600, 80, 600. AD 600. <clears throat> that always confused me when I was younger. In the early 7th century, Gregory the Great solidified the papacy, becoming the first official pope. And later that century, Pope Theodore I was the first pope officially called Sovereign or Supreme Pontiff, which you shouldn't call anybody the Supreme Pontiff. Only Christ is the Supreme Pontiff. At the same time, there was a gross breakdown of separation from the world. This would be the doctrine of Balaam. Gross breakdown of separation from the world. And unregenerate pagans were brought into church membership, and their pagan practices, such as prayers to the dead... Veneration of relics were Christianized and adopted into the Laodicean churches. Constantine's patronage, Ironside says, Constantine's patronage did what Diocletian's persecution could not do. It corrupted the church. And she forgot her calling as a chaste virgin espoused to an absent lord. Then she gave her hand in marriage to the world that had crucified him thus entering into an unholy alliance of which she has never really repented ironside that's pergamus again the letters to the churches generally fit the history the history of the church the history of the church again referring to both the blood bought redeemed and the Laodicean what we could what could call the roman catholic church but we won't. It's, it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. Right Right here, it was probably just the Roman Catholic Church in this time frame. But after this time frame, it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. Then we have Thyatira, the fourth period. I'm going through these faster than I thought I would. Thyatira. This letter describes the Jezebel spirit. The Jezebel spirit would be idolatry, fornication, and involvement in satanic things. This is all of what Jezebel was involved in, the historical Jezebel. So that's why God says they have a Jezebel spirit. Let's read the letter to Thyatira, verse 18 of Revelation 2. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. He's, so he's, he's talking to the blood-bought. There were some blood-bought redeemed that suffered that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she, she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Ah, this church is lasting until, this apostate church lasts until the great tribulation, and goes into the great tribulation, Laodicean church. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira... As many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Thyatira, about A.D. 600, again it overlaps, the last one was 700. A.D. 600 to approximately A.D. 1500, this is the longest stretch. The longest stretch, this is the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages of the Roman Empire. Uh, Excuse me, the Roman Catholic Church, not the Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church. The letter, again, describes the Jezebel spirit, idolatry, fornication, involvement in satanic things. This Jezebel brought fornication and idolatry into the churches and was associated with the depths of Satan. We see that in verse 20 and verse 24. So these practices, idolatry, fornication, and satanic things, these practices which began in earlier periods, but were but were for the most part thrown out, and were in the bloodbought churches, redeemed churches, they were thrown out. It was just the Judaizers and the Nicolaitan churches that were accepting these things. But now they became settled doctrine in the Laodicean church. And the Laodicean church is drawing, it's always drawing away those who are, who are false converts, drawing them away into the Laodicean church. <clears throat> they became settled doctrine as the first millennium proceeded and the second began. Fornication became rampant in the Roman Catholic Church because of its unscriptural doctrine of celibacy and confession to a priest. The fornication surrounding the papacy itself has been well documented in history. Idolatry became rife, and Mary was exalted as the chief idol. Jezebel spirit, Mary, the chief idol. Interesting. William Newell, a Bible believer, said this. Whoredom, witchcraft, religious fasts. This was Jezebel. Is not this also Rome? Jezebel also supported a horde of idolatrous idolatrous priests of her own. Babylonians all. That's what Jezebel. William Newell said of this time period. John Wolvord wrote, During this period also there began that exaltation of Mary, the mother of our Lord, which has tended to exalt her to the plane of a female deity, through whom intercession to God should be made, and apart from whose favor there can be no salvation. He's just talking about Roman Catholic doctrine, false doctrine. The prominence of a woman prophetess in the church at Thyatira anticipates the prominence of this unscriptural exaltation of Mary. That's what John Walvoord said. Ironside said, Jezebel was adept in the art of mixing. She undertook to unite the religion of Israel and the religion of Phoenicia, the, the historical Jezebel. That is just what Romanism is. A mixture of heathenism, Christianity, and Judaism. It is not Christianity, yet there is in it quite a bit that is Christian. From, from where did its superstition and image worship come? It was all taken from heathenism and the plea that it would help, con, that it would help convert the pagans. We'll, 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 we will worship images that will help the heathens to get saved. The church became very accommodating. In the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, we find the church compromising with heathen rites and heathen ceremonies to such a degree that by the 7th century, one could hardly tell heathen from Christian temples. The amalgamation is such that it is almost impossible to separate the one from the other. When he addresses himself to the church of Thyatira, Christ speaks solemnly as the Son of God. Why does the Lord Jesus Christ emphasize the fact of his deity here? Because Rome everywhere was accustomed, was a, has accustomed people to think of him as the son of Mary, not the son of God. That's that's what, what Ironside said of this time period. Then Sardis, Sardis, about fourteen hundred to about seventeen hundred A.D. Sardis in the letter describes a partial reformation. A partial, insufficient reformation. Let's look at the letter to Sardis. Revelation 3. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, and that that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Interesting. Thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This fifth period of church history describes a partial insufficient reformation. Sardis, this church, had a name that it was alive. But Christ said, you're actually dead. In verse 1. He said, its works were not perfect before Christ, before God, in verse 2. He said the church, the church was told to remember the first works. Again, referring to the New Testament pattern given by the apostles in verse 3. All of these things are characteristic of the, of the denominations that arose out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th to the 18th centuries. They left the Catholic Church and rejected some of Rome's false beliefs and practices, but they did not return to the pure apostolic model. They still held to infant baptism. They still held to to special priesthood. We are all priests of God if you are born again. They still held to sacraments. They held to liturgy and other errors. They established state churches. Christ didn't tell us to establish state churches. And brought the unsaved into church membership by the rite of infant baptism. Thus, though they had a name that they lived, they were largely dead. William Newell said of this Sardis church, the Reformation church, nothing could describe Protestantism more accurately. As over against Romish night and ignorance, she has enlightenment and outward activity. The great state churches or denominations with creeds and histories costly churches and cathedrals, universities and seminaries, boards, bureaus of publication and propaganda, executors of organized activities, including home and foreign missions, even lobby men to influence legislation at court. You and I dare compare the church with no other model that the Holy Spirit gave, with no other model that the Holy Spirit gave at Pentecost and in Paul's day. And compared to that, the model that Christ gave in his word, Protestantism has a name but is dead. Protestantism has a name but is dead. That was William Newell. Of Sardis, Ironside said, Nothing can be much sadder than vast congregations of people who are baptized, banded together as Christians, taking the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, zealous for church and Christianity, and yet... Largely devoid of personal saving faith in Christ. What can be sadder than that? Trusting in forms, ceremonies, and what some people have called birthright membership, rather than in new birth through the word and the spirit of God. That was Ironside. Sardis, an an insufficient Reformation church. And then the the sixth and last blood-bought, Redeemed church, at least that had some blood-bought and redeemed in it, the Philadelphia church. This would be about the time where the Bible, the Philadelphia church, would have began about the time the Bible was put into common language. And the Bible was finally able to be known by the common man. This is when the Philadelphia church began about, or, or I should say at least when the common tongue Bibles began to take effect in people's lives. Tyndale and the others started way early. But I, I would put the Philadelphia period where the, the Bible started having an effect, about A.D. 1600. 1600. And how long will this Philadelphia period last? Till the rapture. Till the rapture. We are in the Philadelphia period of true churches. Of true churches. But we are but the Laodicean period, oh, the Laodicean period has always been there. And it is taking away churches causing true churches to fall into apostate, uh, into an apostate state. They are turning from Philadelphian churches to Laodicean churches all around us. Philadelphia, the last true church age. It's the sixth period. Turn, turn to Revelation 3-7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia. It describes the churches that keep God's word, verse 8, and escape the great tribulation, verse 10. This is the remnant of sound churches that remain true to God all the way until the rapture. We need to be in that group. Amen? We need to be in that group of sound churches that remain true to God all the way to the rapture. From the fact that Jesus' promise to the church at Philadelphia obviously looks beyond anything that was experienced in that church historically and can only apply directly to churches existing at the time of the rapture, today when Jesus comes back, that's verse 10, we see that there will be Philadelphia churches existing up to the rapture of the church. Philadelphia Church is existing in the darkest hours until Christ returns as the morning star and raptures his church out of here. He promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many people today have abandoned the church as an institution. But Jesus promised that he would be with it even unto the end of the world. Matthew sixteen eighteen and Matthew eighteen twenty. So in spite of widespread apostasy, apostasy is, is becoming more and more, in in spite of widespread apostasy that exists in in our day. And it's promised, by the way, it is promised to get worse and worse. We'll look look at that in just a little while. We can be encouraged that there are true Philadelphian churches today. True Philadelphian churches. We are responsible to continue to support Christ's chosen institution, the church, the Philadelphia church, until he comes. Somebody said, Philadelphia is a description of a loyal remnant called out by the Spirit of God and bearing the final testimony to the whole counsel of God by word and deed. A loyal remnant. Apostasy is spreading. And then we come to the last letter, Laodicea. The unregenerate apostate end-time church that would be, if Christ had come back here, it would have been the end-time church. If Christ had come back here, it would have been the end-time church. It has always existed since the time that Christ established the church. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee out of my mouth. That doesn't sound like a saved believer to me. Because thou sayest I am rich. And increased with goods. And have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched. And miserable. And poor. And blind. And naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold. Tried in the fire. That thou mayest be rich. And white raiment. Notice they do not have white raiment that is a symbol of salvation a symbol of the righteousness of Christ they do not have it I counsel to thee to buy me gold that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent behold I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Notice verse 20 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. Notice verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. He's standing in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Revelation 2 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What were the candlesticks representative of? The churches. He was in the church. He was in the church. Go back to Revelation 3.20. Where is he now? In the Laodicean church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's standing outside the church. He's no longer in the midst of the Laodicean church. He's standing outside of it. This is an apostate, unsaved, unregenerate church, historically speaking. Now later on when we get into how these apply to every church... It's a backslidden church and this, this apply this, this diagram applies better to how these apply, how these churches apply to every church. You can be a backslidden church heading, heading your way to apostasy and becoming poorer and poorer and more wretched and more miserable and more involved in sin. you can be, be going that way without being apostate. okay So this will be a picture later on when we get into number three. Number three of the reasons. Again, that reason is, excuse me, number two. it's These are messages given to instruct all churches. You will find your church in one of these seven churches. That's number two. So this is a better illustration. But this is not a good illustration of historically. This is the illustration of historically. Okay? But, but uh, going back now to that last church, Laodicea. It's the unregenerate, apostate, end-time church. It's a church that has been drawing away false converts, the, the, the ones that did not actually believe in Christ. They've been drawing them away with false doctrine. This, the whole time of church history, and they've been there from the beginning, They'll, they will be there at the end when the rapture comes, they will be the church, the, the lost church, that goes into the tribulation. It's the unregenerate, end-time church. It has existed since A.D. 60 at least when Nero started persecuting the church and when, when, when Paul was having trouble with the, the Nicolaitans and the Judaizers and several of his churches, Paul's churches, had already fallen away. By the time of Paul's death, he said, no man stood with me. They're all fallen away. All the churches that he started, all of them except maybe one or two of them, they had all fallen away. There has always been an apostate, unregenerate church since the time of the the apostles. And this so-called church has grown and grown alongside the true churches throughout the entire church age. It's described as a false church, the Laodicean church. is described as physically wealthy, but spiritually wretched, spiritually miserable, spiritually poor, blind and naked. Verse 17 of chapter 3. And above all, the Lord Jesus is standing outside of this church, inviting individuals to come to him. What a great picture of, of the apostate churches today and throughout the church age. But especially during today, the last hour of the age. We're in the end times. Ironside, Ironside says, notice, Ironside said this over a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago. You would think he was still living. And he was talking about today. He said this, Ironside. Laodicea is a compound word meaning the rights of the people. The rights of the people. Could any other term more aptly set forth the condition of modern affairs? Rights of the people. It is the era of democratization in both the world and the church. The spirit of this ultra-democratic age has invaded a large portion of the professed church. The authority of God and his word is rapidly being denied. The spirit of the age is is the spirit of a large part of the church, democracy, whatever the the group decides, that's what we'll do. What about the will of Jesus Christ? What happened to that? The authority of God and his word is rapidly being denied. Uh, Hence the striking correspondence between this letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, and, and what is so prevalent about us. There is neither burning zeal for his word, nor yet absolute repudiation of Christ and the Bible. And that's what people are, are, want us to do today. Accept everything. Be, 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 be okay with everything. I, I'm okay with the word of God. The word of God is the authority. <clears throat> there is neither burning zeal for his word, nor yet absolute repudiation of Christ and the Bible. Instead, there is a nauseating, a hundred years ago, This guy said this, nauseating, lukewarm condition that is abhorrent to the spirit of God. Never were church dignitaries and carnally minded religious leaders more satisfied with themselves and their great work than today. They advocate anything and everything that will seem to increase the church's popularity. Ah, beloved friends, Ironside says, it is getting late in the dispensation, the church age. The nightshades are fast falling and the Lord who in the beginning was in the midst of his church stands outside that lukewarm system that calls itself by his name and he knocks in vain for entrance. He knocks in vain for entrance. Another biblical scholar, J.A. Seiss, S-E-I-S-S, wrote this back in 1900, 122 years ago. He wrote, It is Laodicean. Conformed in everything to the popular judgment and will. The extreme opposite of Nicolaitan. Instead of a church of domineering clericals, it is the church of the domineering mob. In which nothing may be safely preached except what the people are pleased to hear. In which the teachings of the pulpit are fashioned to the tastes of the pew. And the feelings of the individual override the enactments of legitimate authority. Talking about church authority. The feelings of the individual override the enactments of legitimate authority. It is lukewarm. Nothing decided. Partly hot and partly cold. It is self-satisfied, boastful, and empty. What more can be wanted? He says, can any man scrutinize narrowly the professed church of our day and say that we have not reached the Laodicean age? That was J.A. Seiss back in 1900. Well, yeah, we have because the Laodicean age was always there with us pulling pulling false converts away from God. What can we learn from the the prophetic view? This is again the prophetic view of the seven letters. Go with me to 2 Timothy, please. Chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Apostasy will increase until the end. That is one thing you and I can be sure of from the prophetic lessons here in these Letters to the churches, apostasy, false converts falling away from the truth, false churches being raised up, uh, false doctrine being taught. That will increase until the rapture. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We've got to be careful. We have got to be careful not to become one of those that get deceived. The word of God is the standard. The word of God has not changed. It's been the same for 6,000 years, ever since God began writing his book. God's word does not change. It's been established in heaven from the foundation of the world. That is our standard. We must not fall uh, prey to these these, uh, tricksters and deceivers. Apostasy will increase. Watch out. Watch out. Secondly, the second lesson, the church of Christ will not be conquered. It won't die. Go back to Matthew chapter 16, please. Matthew 16. Yes, apostasy increases. Yes, uh, false churches get stronger and stronger. Uh, There will be fewer and fewer and fewer true churches. How does that happen? Do do, uh, people... Who are Christians become non-Christians? Do we lose our salvation? No. It's just that pastors get old and die. And then another pastor who who could be an unbeliever gets put into that church. And he leads the church astray. And that church, which once was sound and led by a, a Bible believer and a born-again man, now is not led by a Bible believer and a born-again man and it goes apostate. And the Bible believers leave the church. The ones who are saved leave the church and go find a different church. And that church becomes Satan's church. Okay? But we can learn from from history. All the way through history. Even when Satan was trying his best to turn everybody into apostates. Even while he was murdering all the the believers in, in the Smyrna age for 200 years. Slaughtering Christians. There's still a church today. There's still a church today, a true church. Why? Because of Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus said, and I say also unto thee, talking to Peter, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's still true churches. There's still Philadelphia churches today because Jesus has kept his promise. And he kept true churches uh, uh, established throughout the ages. Even though there were churches that became established and then fell away. A, a, A new church established and it fell away after time. Yet there are still true churches like ours that hold to the word of God. That hold to the word of God. But no church is safe. No church is safe. No one church is safe from falling away. Yes, there will be churches. That will still be Philadelphia churches when Jesus comes back. But not necessarily this one. We must be watchful. We must be careful not to let false doctrine in. Not to let anything in that denies God's word. God's word is the standard. God's word is the, 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 the point of compass that we go by. We must be, not allow anything that uh, is contrary to God's word be a part of our lives. Apostasy will increase. But true churches will also be there. Jesus said, will I find faith on the earth? Why did he say that? Because of this false laodicean church. Will I find faith on the earth? Yes, you will, Lord Jesus, because you promised you would. You promised there would be your church still there. And you're going to keep your word, even though the devil is trying his hardest. So this is is the, the... Historical view of church history, as given to us by uh, the letters to the seven churches. We're not going to get into that anymore, because that's not the main point of those letters. But I had to bring that out and share with you the history of the churches. Uh, you can't do a, you can't do justice to these letters without uh, sharing this part of it. But we're going to be studying now what directly applies from this point on. What directly applies to our church? What directly applies to me as an individual? My relationship with Jesus Christ, the church's relationship with Jesus Christ. How does that stand? How does how am I doing with my relationship to Christ? That's what those letters specifically specifically are for. And from now on, that's what we're going to be centering on. Let's pray, dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for your, for the teaching. Thank you for the fact that you kept your promise and that there are still, after all those hundreds and millions of Christians who were martyred and slaughtered by Satan and the workers of evil, there are still Bible believers today. There are still churches that preach your word. Lord, thank you for every single Bible-believing church. Thank you, Lord, for every church that holds to uh, your word without compromise. And, Lord, I pray that you would speak to pastors across this land that are compromising, that they would be convicted of their sin, that they would turn back to you, O Lord. If they're not saved even, Lord, would you convict them of of their need of salvation? Father, I pray that we as this church and me as the pastor of this church, Lord, we would not compromise. Help me, Lord, to to be uh, vigilant about false teaching, vigilant about uh, the, the... the sneaky deceivers coming into the church. Lord, would you please protect us from that? Help us, Father, to be a church that stands strong for you and greets you in the air when you come. Bless now, I pray, this invitation. Speak to hearts, challenges, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I know this wasn't overly uh, spiritually,